I'm going to start with chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. We've read it every single week, but it just gives us the idea of why Luke is writing this. Okay, so starting in verse 1, many have undertaken uh, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the world. Word, sorry. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And that's what Luke really wants us to know is the certainty of the things that uh, we have been taught about Jesus, about who he was, what he did, and uh, so we're going to go into this. We have, last week, Pastor Mark went over, uh, went through Luke 4, the, just the beginning parts, um, talking about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And uh, so we're going to start just after that, and this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, okay? Uh, so we're going to start in verse 14, um, and we're going to read through a little bit of this. Okay. So in verse 14, starts out, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay. So the first part that I want us to recognize here is that Jesus uh, is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it's saying that this is as, as was his custom. So this was something that we can learn about Jesus right now, and it applies to our life. Uh, Jesus went to church <laughs> every single week, every single time. He was faithful to church, and that's something that we can, he demonstrated that in his own life. And he's in Nazareth right here. So he is in Nazareth where he is surrounded by family, friends, relatives, neighbors. Uh, these are all the people that have loved him for his entire life. Um, so he's just being faithful to his community. Um, and in this moment right here, uh, Jesus is participating in the service. Okay, so he is a reader necessarily. So it's not necessarily that he's leading the whole thing. He's just been asked to come and read the daily scripture that they kind of go through, okay? And some people, you might be able to pick your own reading, and that's what Jesus did here. And part of what a reader would do is they would go to a, a passage, they would read it. They might jump around to a few different places, and Jesus does that a little bit. Um, but he is quoting uh, Isaiah 61.1. And the importance of 61.1 was Jesus was describing his purpose on this planet, okay? 
And so he's telling his family, his friends, this is why I'm here. That's what he's saying. And so he starts off uh, saying, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Which basically meant the Holy Spirit has been given to Christ as the man. You know, God is, uh, Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. Okay? So the Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus. And that is the example that we have when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. Jesus did the same thing. Okay? Um, He continues saying, because he has anointed me, so the Holy Spirit has anointed him to proclaim the good news to the poor. And in Isaiah 61, 1, it actually says to the meek. It's saying to the poor in spirit, those who are sensible of the spiritual poverty that they have. Okay, so they're aware of the weakness that is in them. They're aware of their fallen nature. Uh, they understand that they are poor in spirit. And God, Jesus has come to proclaim the good news And the good news is that he has come to heal the brokenhearted, which this part, to heal the brokenhearted, was actually in Isaiah 61.1, but some translations take it out of uh, Luke 4. Um, But it's still, the people that he was talking to would understand that that's part of the passage. Okay, so they would understand that that's part of it. But it has to do with the conviction and the Holy Spirit drawing people to himself. Okay? It was, it's part of the salvation process. He continues saying, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he's talking not necessarily uh, a literal freeing, freeing of the people. He's talking about being captive to sin. And the thing we have to remember about Jesus when he's saying this, this is a messianic prophecy, Okay. And Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites, and he's saying, uh, the Messiah will be born, a new king will be born that will, A, free the people, and B, start a kingdom that will never end. Okay? So the people, when he is reading through this messianic prophecy, uh, their ears perk up. You know, they start listening, they're like, we know what this is saying, we know what this is prophesying over Uh, our time, and it's been 400 years. There's been a lot of things happening. So when Jesus starts saying these things, they start questioning, they start wondering. He continues saying, recovering of sight to the blind, or the spiritually blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus, at this point, sits down, Uh, He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So he sits down, goes through this messianic prophecy, and basically what he just told them was, I am the Messiah. I am fulfilling this prophecy today. And immediately what they're hearing is, if you put yourself in their position, they knew Jesus because he was in diapers with them. Okay, He walked with them. He grew up with them. It'd be like one of your cousins saying, hey, I'm the most important person in the world. <laughs> and Jesus knew their heart, though. 
but they were questioning, isn't this Joseph's son? There were a few things that they were questioning. Okay, first, there were still rumors of his birth. Um, there was still the whole scandal with Mary and Joseph. That was still on their mind. Uh, they knew him his whole life. They knew that he was just a carpenter's son, a carpenter or stonemason. Um, so they knew his education level, okay? And also, they basically knew everything about him. And the Messiah was supposed to be this conquering hero who was supposed to free the Jewish people from Roman rule. That's what it would have meant at that time. So here's the stonemason saying he's going to free the Israelites from Roman rule. Free the Jews from Romans. And they just, they were not having it. They didn't have any faith in this. And they began to question, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus uh, said to them, he said, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So looking through that, Jesus is talking about two individuals. He's talking about the Sidonian woman and a Syrian leper. The reason why they had so much rage built up in them at that moment was that he was comparing them to the Israelites of that time. He was basically saying to them that uh, they were the ones, he was comparing them to the Israelites who were overlooked by God. He mentioned that both of these people, the Sidonian woman and the Syrian leper, were not Israelites. They were somebody that God had gone outside of the strict family, if you will, um, and had chosen them, but not the Jewish people. And they were furious because Jesus just told them that not only were they overlooked, but they were just as bad as the Israelites in the times of Ahab and Jezebel. One of the worst times in all of Israel's history. He was comparing to them to, the, to this wicked, wicked time. And so the Jews who were there hearing Jesus do this, they immediately rose up and they broke their own rules. Um, the Jews were not allowed to inflict punishment on the Sabbath day. They were not allowed to have any uh, Definitely not any sort of uh, killing or anything like that. They weren't, they weren't going to stone people. It was set for another day. And so they were so furious, they were willing to break the Sabbath. And this is an extremely, extremely religious group of people. For them to break anything would be almost unheard of. But in that moment, Jesus showed his divine power and walked through their midst. Now, we can only speculate uh, what that looked like. 
Um, it could be anywhere from him just overpowering all the way to uh, Jesus' power blinding them and walking through them. Uh, most commentators, they, they have no idea what that actually looks like. But all we know is that Jesus showed some incredible divine power. Um, and that was the only thing that he showed as far as divine power to those in Nazareth. After Nazareth, he went down to Capernaum. And in, I'm in verse 31. It says, And went down to Capernaum, uh, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. When I was reading this, I, I paused there. Um, I was curious as to why they were astonished. And if you've done any reading on this, uh, most people will say that people were astonished because of his character, his tone. He had a grandiose appearance. or um, That's what most people will say. Um, the Truth Project actually went a little bit deeper into this. Uh, I don't know if you've gone through any of the Truth Project. If you haven't, it's okay. Um, but they went into and found that there was a deeply cultural thing going on there. Okay, so a traveling rabbi, which is what Jesus was, would be, it was customary for them to be allowed to teach. Um, and when they would go in, they would act like a Torah teacher. And a Torah teacher would go through a very specific and strict set of approved teaching and theology. Okay, they would teach in three parts. The first part, they would say, it is written, uh, and then the teacher would quote the text by memory. The second part would say that means such and such, and he would explain using parables or stories. And the third part, uh, would say, he would say, according to such and such rabbi, they would always attribute their authority or their explanation to another rabbi. Okay? A Torah teacher would always go through these exact same three parts of their teaching. And it was almost monotonous. It was redundant, and they had a, the same set of teaching almost every time. There were different texts, but it would be a similar uh, response. It would be a similar explanation, and they would always give uh, attribution to another rabbi. Jesus astonished them because his word possessed authority and what they are talking about is a rabbi who would teach with a particular authority. It was called Semica authority. And Semica authority, uh, you get Semica authority after you have uh, completely memorized the Tanka. The Tanka was the Torah, the first five books of the uh, Old Testament, the prophets, and other writings. You had to have them completely memorized. And it goes into the, the Mishnah and a few other books. Um, the Talmud, all of the religious explanations, they had to have it memorized. And most rabbis who got to Semica were in their 70s and 80s. Jesus was about 30 at the time. And when he's speaking, a, a, a teacher with Semica would teach differently. It would be in three parts, but he would say, it was written. Explain the, he would quote the verse. And then the second part, he said, you have heard that it means this. And the third part would say, but I tell you it means this. 
And we know that Jesus taught like that all the time. Uh, he would constantly use parables. He would constantly use, it was written this, uh, the Beatitudes are filled with this type of teaching. That was an authoritative uh, Semaica teacher. And a Semaica rabbi was allowed to give their own interpretations. They didn't have to attribute their interpretations to another rabbi. The reason Jesus uh, had all this and he made a lot of the religious leaders mad. Um, and if you remember in Matthew, they would come up to him and just say, by what authority do you teach these things? They would always ask him this. They, they constantly brought it up. And it was because of this. But Jesus was the only one who was given Semica authority by God himself. It wasn't from another rabbi. It was from God himself when he was baptized in the Jordan River. So when... They were astonished at his teaching. It was because he was teaching extremely different. I'm sure he had a very eloquent and wonderful speech, but he was teaching with Semica authority, which would have been extremely, extremely rare. So while he is teaching, uh, we see two, we see one interaction here. And the first interaction is with a demon and, uh, or a possessed, uh, a person who is possessed, okay? And if you remember from last week, uh, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, we didn't see it in necessarily like a physical form or anything like that. It, there's speculation there. But what we do see throughout Scripture is possession, oppression, and the devil trying to work whatever way he can to influence Jesus' ministry, to influence uh, other people's lives, and right here we see the first instance of a possession, okay? And in verse 33, we'll jump there. Uh, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So there are a few things that we need to deal with in this section. The first thing that I want us to recognize is the location of the demon in the synagogue. First uh, Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is not above being in the church. <laughs> the four walls here, or five or six... The walls here are not magic. They're not keeping out the attacks of the enemy. Uh, Satan is patient. He's had a lot of experience with human nature, more than all of us combined. He understands how we operate. He's smart, and he's going to wait for the opportune moment, and that might be in the middle of church. Nobody's asleep, right? <laughs> but... 
we are not weak, we are not empty, and we are not alone. Jesus is the one that we can trust. As this passage has exclaimed, Jesus has authority over the spiritual forces of this world. He has authority over the spiritual realm. But we have been given weapons and tools to be able to combat these things. And Paul rightly talks about our role in spiritual warfare in Ephesians, talking about the full armor of God. That way we can be proactive, that we can be waiting, we can be ready uh, to stand against the devil's schemes. And we have to recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. First, uh, Second Corinthians continues in chapter 10, uh, saying that for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is why we meet every single uh, day for prayer. This is part of our role. It's our role for ourselves. It's our role for our families. It's our role for the people that we know. We are coming against uh, the pretensions of this world that are setting it up against God. And that's part of our role in prayer. It's going back and forth. We have a, a role in spiritual warfare. We have to bring things to Christ. The second thing that I want us to recognize uh, is the, the recognition and tone in the demon's words. Uh, reading through, the demon almost starts out with surprise, right? He's saying, why are you here? What have you to do with us? He's speaking in, in plural form for multiple demons in the region, okay? And it devolves into fear, saying, have you come to destroy us? And then it ends with somewhat of a praise, but it's more of an appeal to Christ in vain glory. Okay? Uh, he's saying, I know who you are, though. Uh, you are the Holy One of God. St. Thomas Aquinas notes uh, in here that the first person or, or being in Luke to recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God was the devil. And it shouldn't necessarily come to a, be surprising to us uh, because Satan wants to disturb the proper order of things. But Satan has no business teaching scripture for he will certainly alter the truth. Okay? Now the devil praised Jesus. He called him the Holy One of Heaven as if he understood what it truly meant. Uh, I liked what Spurgeon said on the subject as well. He said uh, that this is an old trick of the devil to acknowledge the excellence of the preacher that he may avoid the personal application of the sermon. And there are many people who are quite satisfied when they have said concerning the word which they have heard, yes, it is all true and it was very well put, but this is not the purpose of a true minister of the gospel. Simply to win the compliment of your approbation, he wants to see the devil cast out of you and to stir up your heart so that you will no longer let religion alone, but will flee to Christ to save you. God's not interested in just the recognition of his power or who he is. 
He wants to save us wholly, fully, 100%. He cares about us. He loves us. And it's so much more than just saying mere words. Jesus then rebukes the demon. Satan is trying to control this situation. He wants to pacify Jesus into letting him go. The demon is perfectly content uh, being right there with that one person. He's perfectly content with apathy. Apathy is fine with him. But Jesus is not apathetic. uh, And Jesus is not swayed by flattery. He's not swayed by the testimony of the demon or the praises. He rebukes the demon. Jesus' power is not going to be stopped in this situation. Jesus is not going to stop speaking. And he will not leave the demon alone. Jesus further showcases his power over the demon by not only telling him to be quiet, which the demon no longer speaks after that, but he removes the power of the demon to do any harm to the person, to the man who is there. This whole story is paralleled in Mark. Uh, and in Mark, it actually talks about how the demon leaving uh, the guy was a very violent, uh, violent exit, if you will. Uh, and in all reality, the man should have been hurt he should, it was thrown into the midst. He was, it was supposed to be intended for the destruction of this, this guy. And Jesus takes away that power completely, demonstrating his authority over spiritual forces by keeping this man from harm. So Jesus rendered this demon completely powerless, uh, and the demon left. The response of the people was interesting. It continued with their astonishment. Because they're connecting the dots here. They're saying, here's this teacher who speaks with this authority that we've never heard before, we've never experienced before. But not only that, we've heard stories of this, but not only that, he is operating in a power that we have never experienced. We have never seen. And immediately, Jesus becomes the talk of the town. Everybody wants to talk about him. Everybody wants to talk about this situation, and it just spreads like wildfire. The next section is another thing that Luke wants to explain. Luke wanted to explain two things about Jesus. The first two things uh, to Theophilus, he wanted to explain uh, Jesus' authority over spiritual forces And then Jesus' authority over physical ailments, over physical needs. So in the next uh, verse, it says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting... All those who had heard, who, excuse me, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, "You are the Son of God!" But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. So this story is paralleled in Mark 1, uh, 29 through 34, and in Matthew 8:14 through 17. 
The thing we need to note about uh, Luke is that Luke is a doctor himself, and he's making note of this fever. Okay, he's, say, he's saying that this fever is great, it is high, it is deadly. Uh, so he makes that distinction, and I think it's important to know that he is a doctor, and he's making that distinction. Uh, he's the one that would know. Um, and at that time, fevers were extremely dangerous. They were deadly, and they could spread quickly. It would wipe out towns and villages, and uh, it would become an epidemic quickly. Um, they didn't have the medicine that we do today. Uh, it was a lot harder uh, to deal with. And so this is a very, very big deal. Um, this would be like us talking about cancer. Okay? Um, the thing that we also need to recognize here, uh, however unfortunate, it is part of human nature. Sickness is part of human nature. And nobody is exempt from it. Um, not anybody acquainted with Jesus. Uh, age isn't an exemption, and our abilities or goodness can't keep us from sickness. It is part of the fall of man. But Jesus has authority over these things. And I like what the disciples did. I think that we need to follow their actions. I think we need to uh, mimic what they did. They appealed to Christ on her behalf. And so when we come into these situations where we know somebody that is sick, somebody that has some ailment, uh, we need to appeal to Christ. And Christ's cure was immediate and it was miraculous. It was something that uh, would have changed the entire atmosphere. And immediately what she did in almost thanks was she got up and just started serving. And I think that is just a, a great testimony of when God operates in our life, when God does something incredible, we just turn it around and say, okay, God, what next? Where am I going? What do I need to do? And we just serve the people around us um, And then we just see where God is taking us. So after this, it says, now when the sun was setting. For Jewish culture, uh, when the sun set at that point, Sabbath was done. Okay? So as soon as Sabbath is done, the entire town is able to take all of their sick, all of the people that need a touch from Jesus, uh, they can actually take it to him. Um, otherwise, they would have been breaking the Sabbath. So everyone wanted to come out and meet Jesus because they have heard all the stories that happened in the synagogue. They heard about uh, Simon's mother-in-law. And Jesus healed all the sick and demon-possessed who were brought to him that night. He did not refuse anyone. I think that's an important thing to note, is that he did not refuse anyone at all. It didn't matter what they believed about him. It didn't matter about what they heard. Jesus demonstrated his power, demonstrated his authority over both the spiritual world and physical needs um, with everyone who was brought to him. And I think that we need to be bringers of people who are in uh, 
spiritual darkness and have a need, whether it's sickness, whether it is uh, an oppression, we probably would see more oppression in our culture. But we need to be bringers and bring people to the one that can heal, the one that can do something about it. Matthew continues in his version by quoting Isaiah 53, 4. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He was talking about how Jesus is uh, confirming further the prophecy that he is the Messiah. So Jesus is confirming all of his authority over these two things. Uh, And I'll I'll make another note here that he is rebuking the demons um, because he does not need their testimony. He does not need the witness of a demon to proclaim who he is. It will happen in its own time. And Jesus, and there is a a set timing to everything. And he doesn't want that to be ruined by the demons. In Luke 4, 42, it continues and says, When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. And would have kept him from leaving the city. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now Jesus often sought out a private place to pray throughout his ministry. And after a long night of work, his first thought wasn't, I need to get some rest and sleep in. His first thought was, I need to get away to the Father. I need to pray. I need to, I have to have that. And it's not necessarily that he needed to pray, but he was setting an example for how he wanted us to respond in those situations. When we are exhausted, when we have done a long day, it's a great time to go to the Father. It's a great time to do that. Jesus knew his power was from the Father, and so he sought him. He sought him out. Now, compare the reactions of those in Nazareth to those in Capernaum. His family, his friends, his neighbors, and relatives rejected him immediately after he began to explain to them his purpose. And those in Capernaum sought after him went after him, they, whether it was for more miracles or whatever, but they knew that Jesus was different, Jesus had authority, Jesus had power, and they wanted to see more of Jesus. And so that's really the choice that we have. We can reject Jesus or we can keep going after him. But Jesus had a larger plan in place. He knew that his role and a defining principle that he needed to do, his defining work was preaching. He needed to go out and go to various towns and continue to tell people the same thing that he talked about in Nazareth. He needed to tell people about the good news of the gospel, that he was here to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight of the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He needed to move on And they allowed him to do that after they knew what was happening. The interesting thing right here, and this is, we'll finish up right here, uh, is that Jesus did not draw all men unto himself at that moment. 
Capernaum is in this really unique spot where it has trade routes going through. It's right on the Sea of Galilee. They have tons of towns all over. It, it is a, a fascinating spot that has the ability to influence many, many areas. Okay, But Jesus didn't sit there. He didn't draw all men to himself. He wanted to seek and save. And I hope that we don't fall into the same trap of saying, we're just going to sit here, we're going to wait till somebody comes along, and then we'll do this. And then we'll do this Christian thing. What Jesus' example was to seek and to save. He went out. He went out to every single place that he could. He talked and he explained the gospel. And in today's society, that may be a terrifying thing because we're trying to step on, we're trying to not break up all of our social customs and we're stepping on eggshells because of our political culture right now. But we have power because we can trust in Christ. He has authority over these things. He has authority that we can lean into Jesus went to the different synagogues in various areas. Uh, he didn't want to hide. He didn't want to be deceptive. And he was always out in the middle of everything. He was in the cultural uh, hub, if you will. He was in the space where he could have the most conversation uh, with people because he wanted to explain this gospel message. He wanted to show people that he was the Messiah, that he was the one who was coming. And so, jump through here. So we see, just to wrap up, we have everything with Nazareth. He was rejected. We see Luke trying to tell Theophilus that he has authority over uh, the spiritual forces. He has authority over physical ailments. And then he ends saying Jesus is moving on from this place. And so that is all of what we have in chapter 4. And we'll continue more next week. I'm going to pray. And then you guys have a wonderful week. Father God, I just thank you. I praise you. Uh, I pray that we just continue to learn more about you. More about who you are. Uh, and the authority that you have. And that we can lean on you when we come into situations we don't understand. Father God, I just uh, thank you for each person in this room. I pray that you would give them wisdom and direction and that we would be uh, people who would bring uh, others to you. And in your name, amen.